Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. It's June 28th, 2017. Thanks for joining us today on the show. So today, um, I decided that I was going to have another big picture uh, sort of lesson rather than a specific topic or a very, you know, specific thing or technique. Uh, this is another big picture lesson, which, you know, in, in some ways can look like, oh, you know, Grandpa Kendall shaking his stick at the kids on the street, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, telling his, those kids to get off his lawn. But uh, in, in truth, I really, this is a topic that's really interesting to me and fascinating. I think it will help a lot of you. And, um, you know, this is kind of like, you know, we had an episode a little while back uh, called Artistic Intent. And uh, I actually didn't think that show would go over very well because it was more of a big picture idea. Rather than a um, rather than a specific technique, but I got a lot of positive response from that episode. So this is kind of another one of those sort of big picture episodes. Now, uh, just before we get into the show, I just want to go over the you know go over the normal stuff here. So make sure you're checking out recordingloungepodcast.com for all things Recording Lounge. Make sure you're checking out the Resource Hub. Okay, so if you're not familiar yet, the Resource Hub is a huge page full of links to articles and websites and podcasts and YouTube channels and books and all kinds of other stuff. So make sure to go there and check out all the great stuff that I've got up there. And if you've got any suggestions for that page, or if you've got any suggestions for the show, podcast episode topics, questions, comments, etc., um, issues with the website, if you have any dead links or anything like that, just send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. That line is always open to you, and I usually am pretty good about responding to those emails. I also wanted to take a minute to shout out to all of my Patreon supporters and PayPal donors. Uh, your support means a whole lot to me, and it helps Helps me offset the costs of hosting this website and the bandwidth and all of that. And as the podcast grows, that stuff gets more expensive. So, you know, it's bittersweet. It's like the podcast is growing and I have to pay more for bandwidth. But, you know, uh, yeah. So um, if you guys aren't familiar with this situation, if you feel like donating to the podcast and helping me offset those costs, because after all, this podcast is and will continue to be free, um, make sure to go to recordingloungepodcast.com slash uh, support RL, I think, or maybe it's just slash support. There's a tab on there that says support RL and you can learn about the Patreon or PayPal donations. Again, I greatly appreciate those cont contributions to the podcast. You guys are helping keep this podcast alive. Unfortunately, you know, like most things in the world, um, you know, you get what you pay for and, and I can't do it for free. You know what I mean? If this was totally free, there would be a lot more compromises that I would had, I had to make, you know, like with how many episodes I could store for free and my bandwidth certainly, um, you know, so I've got to pay for those things. I've got to pay for the website. I've got to pay for the domain and the storage and all the hosting for that and everything. And the music player on our website, which is a very customizable, you know, plays high quality files. Um, you know, I got to pay for that. And so anyway, uh, my, the point I'm making is if you feel uh, like you want to support the podcast monetarily, head over to that page and check it out. And if you have any questions at all about that, just send me an email and I'm more than happy to answer any questions about that. One more thing I'd like to mention is that I was recently interviewed on the audioskills.com podcast. It's a two-part episode. Uh, it's one of the first times, I think it's the first time I've ever been interviewed on a podcast. Uh, I've been interviewed for some, you know, like blogs and stuff before, but it's the first time I've ever been interviewed on another podcast. It was really fun. Uh, so go check that out at audioskills.com. Uh, I think there's a tab somewhere on there for the podcast. Um, sorry, Scott, if I'm butchering this, but I think it might be audioskills.com. 
patreon.com slash podcast. Fingers crossed. Maybe. Yeah, it worked. Okay, great. So audioskills.com slash podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. Um, you know, there's, uh, I've got two episodes in there, episode 11 and 12, Essential Recording Tips with Kendall Osborne, part one and two. Uh, so that's a really cool, we had a good time. He had some great questions for me. Um, and that actually leads me very nicely into our show today, which is sort of I, I kept having this question that he asked me on the show, rattling around in my mind, and uh, coupled with another, you know, another situation. But I'll, I'll get to that. So, one of the questions he asked me on this podcast is sort of like, you know, advice for people just starting out, and you know, who want to want to improve and everything. And um, you know, contrary, you know, or I should say, ironically, my answer to his question was basically like, there's no website or blog or podcast, or college degree, YouTube channel, forum, etc., that will improve your skills as much as time will. And of course, you know, the irony that I'm a podcaster, he's a podcaster, we're talking on a podcast about this very question, and audioskills.com is, you know, a website aimed at audio education. So, <laughs> you know, obviously the irony of that is pretty funny. But uh, the point I'm trying to make with that answer is so many people think that there's a quick fix or they think that there's there's some obvious thing that they're missing or that there's some like, uh, oh, well, I don't have this piece of gear or this plugin or uh, I don't have this or if only I had, um, you know, a nice blah, 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 then I, I'd really be as good as these guys or blah, blah, blah. Um, and my point in saying that was to really try to get the message across that the problems that you're having like 99% of the time are because of you. And I'm not saying necessarily it's because you're not good. It's because either your brain is sort of not really looking at the problem and seeing what the problem actually is. And you're just, you're just ignoring the real problem. Uh, you know, for example, like I said, you know, you think it's, oh, well, if I had this plugin, then, you know, I would really be able to get good drum sounds or whatever, but I don't. So I guess I can't get them or, oh, I, I just use the stock plugins in my DAW. I guess I can't get good sounds. You know, that's, that's a fallacy. You know, your brain, your, your brain is sort of telling you that that's a truth and it's not. Um, I've heard amazing sounds, uh, from stock plugins and amazing sounds from really expensive plugins. So we're going to talk about gear here in a second, but another part that could be your fault is actually kind of a similar problem, but almost in reverse where you're attached to a certain piece of gear. And so you deny that it could be the problem. This happens a lot with musicians where they're like, oh, well, you know, this is a great sounding guitar and a great sounding amp, or, oh no, this is a great sounding snare drum. I, you know, I paid money for it. And it's a great one, but you're sort of just in denial that it really isn't that great. And then when you hear a really good one for the first time, you're like, oh, okay. That and that happens a lot to musicians in general. You know, they get their first, like, really nice tube amp or something, or their really first really nice drum kit, and they're like, "Oh, I I get it. Like, everything I had before this was actually pretty mediocre, and I just I couldn't hear the difference yet." And to be honest, it does take a long time for people to hear those differences. I mean, I'm a guitar player, so um, a lot of the time. Uh, you know, in one of Bobby Osinski's books, he talks about defining moments. And one of the defining moments he talks about for guitar players is the first time they realize that plugging a really good guitar into a tube amp turned up loud and they play that chord and they realize like, holy crap, 
Like that's the sound. Like it's so simple and so pure, but it's a great guitar and a great amp. And there's no like, you know, trickery or pedals or anything needed to really get a good sound. Everything else is then just flavors and, and colors rather than like, oh, I need all this stuff to get a good sound. And that's so true. Like it's so painfully true because, you know, when I started playing guitar, like digital guitar emulations and stuff was new, pretty new and not like digital effects. I mean, those have been around since, you know, a long time, but, um, like, uh, you know, Line 6 was a pretty new company and, you know, they've come a long way since like back then to now. I mean, it's huge how modeling technology has come to, I mean, with like the Kemper and the Fractal stuff and, uh, and even the new Line 6, like the Helix and all that stuff, like it is so much better than it was 10, 15 years ago. Um, like worlds above, right? Um, but, you know, early on, you know, you hear like a modeling amp for the first time and you're like, holy crap, I've got all these sounds available and it's got effects and it's got all this and it sounds amazing. And man, I can do like heavy metal stuff and all this. And then you hear like a PV5150 or something like a nice, you know, well, you know, it, it does a, a thing that not many other amps do. Or you hear like a Mesa, like a really cranked up Mesa and you, you're playing metal with it and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's it. Like that's the sound. Or you plug into like a Marshall Plexi with a Les Paul and, or a Fender Deluxe Reverb with a Telecaster. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like that's the sound. Like there's these moments where you reach these points and it's almost like your hearing sort of steps up, um, like a couple of grade levels, you know, immediately because you hear it. And the first, I remember for me, the first time this happened, um, I was a kid and I was in a, one of my first bands I'm a, I mean, I was like 14 or 15 and, you know, we're just kids. We had basic rigs, you know, I had my like boss DS one, right. Like Kurt Cobain style. And like, I had my solid state amp and like, I thought it sounded amazing. Right. And, you know, my cheap, you know, pawn shop strat. And, uh, so we did our sound check at this gig and then the band after us was like an experience, like we were opening for this like experienced band, like from here in town. And, um, their guitar player was really good. And I remember hearing him on the radio, like their band on like local radio or whatever. And I remember the guitar player got up there and he had like this, uh, Marshall, I think it was like a JCM 800 and he had, or maybe it was like, I don't know, something like some sort of Marshall Plexi. And, um, it looked old. It looked, you know, beat up. And I was like, well, that kind of looks crappy. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know at the time, like, oh, the, the vintage stuff is good or whatever, you know? And he had just like this little 212 cab and, um, and I remember that he just had a Telecaster and I think he had like a tuner pedal and maybe like a tube screamer or something. And that was it. It was super simple. And I was like, oh, well, I've got a wah pedal and a Boss DS1 and an MXR Phase 90. And, you know, I mean, I thought I was awesome because I had all these pedals and, you know, and when he started playing, I was just like, oh my gosh, what is, holy crap. How does he get, like, it sounded immediately to me like a guitar on a record, you know, it sounded like what my ear imagined my rig sounded like. And then as soon as I remember when we got up to play after hearing them sound check, um, as soon as we got up to play, I remember hearing my amp and saying, wow, this doesn't, this sounds like so small and like harsh and 2d and, and it was like, it all hit me at once. I had like this, you know, 
very sinking feeling. And, and it, it was strange, but a lot of people have a similar story to that. You know, when uh, drummers, you know, sometimes they'll, um, you know, when they really hear like a well-tuned drum kit or something, and they hear a really good drummer playing on that drum kit. And when they really hear a drummer playing with a bass player and it just kind of clicks, you know, and you have that moment and you're like, wow, like that's the sound. You know what I mean? Like that is really it. And you sort of realize immediately um, you got a long way to go. In the studio, I've told this story before. Um, the first time one of those things hit me is when I had a really good session drummer in the studio. And, uh, you know, he came into play and immediately it's like all my drum tracks sounded amazing. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't mic it up any different. And I was like, wow, he really is like pulling tone out of those drums. Like I've heard people say that phrase, but I never really got it until now. You know, like he he's hitting it well and consistently and he's he knows how to tune and he knows how to balance himself and he's using, you know, the right sticks for his particular style. He's he's thought about that. He's experimented. He's he knows all those things. He knows what cymbals are going to work and he picked all those things and he brought his own snare drum and he had it tuned and and, you know, when I heard it for the first time, it was just like, oh, wow. Like, and so I had to admit to myself that, you know, I, my ears had a long way to go. Okay. And most of the time I find that to be the truth. When people email me uh, and they have questions, I feel like a lot of times they, they, you know, uh, well, not a lot of times, but sometimes they don't like my answer because, for example, one of the questions I get really often is like, I'm having this problem, blah, blah, blah. And the answer ends up to be, based on what they've told me, my answer is, have you treated your room? Is your room treated? You know, have you done measurements in your room? They're like, well, I've got some bass traps up and stuff. I'm like, but have you measured it? Like, have you really treated it? Like, putting bass traps up in your room doesn't necessarily mean it's treated properly. It means you've put treatment in there, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's set up properly. It doesn't mean your speakers are in the right place. It doesn't mean you've actually tested to see that you're doing any good. Um, now, sure, in general, bass traps are going to help, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the general rule of thumb for those sorts of things is that I, at least that I follow is generally, you know, you got to place your speakers in a good spot. You got to find the spot. You got to use a measurement mic and the treatment is to, you know, to help bring everything closer to, uh, to, you know, flat or to accuracy, um, uh, with an already pretty close sound. And you find that pretty close sound by getting proper orientation of the room, by sitting in the right spot, by putting the speakers in the right spot. And when you find the best spot for those things, for listening position and mix position, um, then the treatment helps from there. But, you know, if you put the treatment up and you're starting from a bad place, you know, it's only working half as well as it could. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Um, you know, a lot of times when I go into small rooms, if I ever do acoustic analysis, um, you know, I went to one a couple years ago where, uh, you know, we had like a plus minus 18 response and that's very common. And so what I mean by that is from the highest peak, um, was plus 18 dB to the lowest null or lowest dip in the response. It was minus 18 dB, plus minus 18. I mean, imagine doing plus 18 dB at 50 hertz and minus 18 dB at 100 hertz and 
plus 18 dB at 130 hertz and then minus 18 dB. I mean, that's insanity, right? Like you would never make that kind of curve, but that's what that room was telling this engineer. And he knew it. He was like, man, I know this room's not accurate, blah, blah, blah. And, um, so he hired me to come in and help him. And just from moving speakers, which again is, I mean, other than paying me is free. I mean, with a measurement mic, you can tell what you're doing. You can see how the response changes and how it improves. Um, just from doing that, we were able to get the response down to plus minus 10, which might need, might not seem like a huge improvement, but it really is because now our span has gone from 36 dB to 20. So it really was more than just a, you know, 8 dB improvement. It's a 16 dB improvement, okay? Then from there, you can refine and refine and add treatment, and that can bring it closer and closer and closer. And you're never really going to get perfectly flat. But, you know, really amazing studios are, you know, plus minus a dB and a half, plus minus 2 dB. Like, that's that's really impressive to do that. It's really difficult, too. Um you know, even anechoic chambers, which are test rooms designed to be reflectionless, um, they're not flawless and they have a calibration curve. So all the inaccuracies of the room, whatever, however slight they may be, are on a calibration curve, which they then reverse so that it tells their gear, no, this is flat, right? Um, so even those are not flawless. I mean, it's really almost impossible to get a f perfectly flat room, even with software and all that stuff. That's again, uh, I'm not even going to get into that yet. The point of this is basically, um, you know, to say that most of the problems that you have, that I have, that any engineer has are user error or user mindset or user denial. Um, not a lot of people want to, want to admit that, you know, they want to buy that $99 plugin and have it solve all their problems. You know, that's what we are told. That's how things are marketed to us from all the gear, you know, retailers and dealers and all that. And you can't blame them for that. Like that's called business. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're literally in the business of selling you stuff. Like why would we think otherwise? Um, you know, you can't look to those places and be like, oh, they really want me to get good stuff. It's like, no, they, they just want you to, they want to sell you things. And, you know, sure, uh, they might have, you know, some time and, you know, uh, emotion invested in you personally, if you've worked with the same person for a while, but at the same time, they're there to sell you things. That's their job. Um, you know, I have no, I'm not trying to sell you anything. You know what I mean? So I'm just telling you like it is like, you don't have to have expensive gear. However, you also can't ignore that your gear might be part of your problem. You can't be in denial. You know, um, there's a common phrase that gets thrown around a lot, uh, which is like, oh, well, you know, a CLA could go mix a record on cheap gear and stock plugins and it would sound amazing because it's CLA. And my response to that is yes, but he doesn't do that. And there's a reason why he doesn't do that because he knows that he can get better results with his setup. Um, and more efficient results and, you know, more particular results. And the same goes for, you know, lots of people will say things like, oh, you know, you don't have to spend all this money on gear anymore. You, you know, you can just go get a, you know, interface from Guitar Center and a couple of mics and like you can make a professional record at home and everything. And, and it sounds all, you know, sounds great and everything. And I'd like to clarify that statement that yes, you can. You can make a great sounding record at home, but that doesn't mean you will. 
that doesn't mean you're automatically going to have a great record because the gear doesn't matter. Okay, that's not what that statement is supposed to mean. Okay, that statement, what it's supposed to mean is your ears really are the most important factor here and your skill as an engineer is the most important factor here. However, um, there's a, again, there's a reason why the big name engineers don't use cheap gear. And again, this is tricky because I should qualify cheap because there are certain pieces of gear that I use that are cheap in cost, but that doesn't mean they're not valuable. Okay. Price and value are not the same thing. Um, for example, I was in a vocal session today and we did a mic shootout like I often do. And the mic that won in a blind shootout was the SM7, um, a $350 dynamic mic that any, any one of you could probably get. And, you know, it beat out microphones that are $3,000, $4,000. And it's because it just so happened to sound the best on that particular vocal. Why? I don't know. Does it matter? They thought their voice sounded awesome in it. I thought their voice sounded awesome on it. I mean, the producer thought the voice sounded great. They were like, what's that mic? I like that. I'm like, well, that's the cheapest one we got up. <laughs> you know, and, but again, so it's not that I'm saying you need expensive gear to make good records. And I'm not saying that the budget gear, quote, quote, is all trash. What I'm saying is, a, an experienced engineer will know what they're listening for and they'll they'll be able to tell when something is good or not. And again, this starts going back to my rant on acoustics, which is if you can trust your room and if you can trust your monitoring setup, um, then you can trust those decisions. You know, how can you gauge anything that you do? How can you gauge a decision that you make? How can you gauge a, you know... Anything, testing a piece of gear, testing a plug-in, I mean, making a mix decision. How can you trust any of that if you can't trust your room? Uh, if you, I mean, that to me is job number one. Job number one is to be able to trust what you're hearing from your room, from your monitors, from that setup, from your listening setup. You got to be able to trust that. From there... You can then feel confident in any of these other decisions about, well, is this a good sounding guitar amp? You know what I mean? Like all these questions we've kind of at least mentioned so far, we're coming, you know, regarding gear, you actually can have a good opinion on. You can actually say like, oh, that is a good sounding snare drum. Like, I don't see how you can even enter that debate unless you have a semi-accurate monitoring environment. And again, you can't let your ego get in the way and be like, oh yeah, I put up panels, it's accurate. It's like, prove it. You know what I mean? Like, I would have no problem showing you guys my room response and what it looks like because I'm proud of it. I've worked very hard to get it where it is. And it's not even perfect, but it's really good. And, you know, it, can, you, can you do the same for me? Can you show me your, how accurate your response is? Um, you know, if you can't, then I would argue that your room's not right because you haven't actually measured it. Um, I mean, I literally have thousands of measurements, um, in this room of little tiny speaker movements and panels moving, changing out panels. I mean, thousands upon thousands of tests in this room. And, you know, and, and so it's just one of those things, you know what I mean? It's one of those things that I, I know it's not the answer you wanted, but it's the truth and it really is the truth. And so when I get, 
uh, people sending me emails with questions, um, you know, this, this, and this, and I answer like, is your room treated, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'll try to answer the question indeed, but a lot of times it ends up to be like, oh, you know, I, I'm having a hard time getting uh, a good acoustic guitar sound. Um, you know, it just seems really boxy and hollow and all this. Like, what mics do you use on acoustic? Okay, in a question like that, my first question is, you know, look at the source, right? Look at the source. Is it a good sounding, what acoustic is it? You know, what strings you have on? Are they old strings? You know, how's the room? Is the room treated? Is it, a, is it an actual, like, made for recording room or is it a bedroom? Is it a closet? Like, what is it, you know? Um, because all those are clues. And again, people are looking for that pill, you know, that, that, uh, dietary supplement, you know, the, it's just a, oh yeah, pay, buy this pill and you'll get skinny. And it's like, we all know that that's a scam. I mean, that's, that doesn't fool anybody when it comes to like, you know, oh, this magic diet pill, you'll lose a hundred pounds. Like that doesn't fool anybody in that realm. Like the average Joe can be like, all right, come on. You know what I mean? Like they, they can t see through the marketing, but for some reason, uh, people in the audio world often can't see through the marketing. They can't see that somebody's trying to sell you, you know, a plug-in bundle or a subscription, you know, uh, to plugins that, uh, you, oh, it's the missing ingredient. Oh, and then your mixes don't sound good because they don't have analog modeling and, uh, you know, all this stuff, right? Like, it's absolute marketing. Don't get me wrong. I love analog model plugins, but, like, it's not the reason, right? Like... It is not the reason your recordings don't sound good, okay? Uh, neither is, you know, even if, I mean, there are some famous recordings, um, particularly some like Michael Jackson songs that have zero compression on them, except like a little bit of limiting on his vocal. And that's it. No compression on the instruments. None of that stuff. It's like, so that's not your problem. Like compression is not your problem. Like all of that stuff is used to enhance what's already there. Similarly, there are some really amazing jazz recordings done by people like Al Schmidt that use no EQ. Okay, so again, in that situation, and that to me is even harder to imagine, honestly, because I, I use EQ all the time. Um, but, you know, so the EQ is not the problem in those situations. And and Al Schmidt knows it. He knows that the EQ isn't his problem because he's not using any EQ. <laughs> so, you know, you can't just blame that. You can't blame a processor. You can't blame anything like that because there's none of them. And that's really astounding. There's actually, a, I think I remember reading about a couple of Steely Dan records where there's no EQ either. They use the microphone positions for their EQ. So, you know, if in the, in the, in the room or whatever, it sounded really good and they put a mic on, it sounded great. But in context, it needed to be thinner to fit into the mix. They would use a different mic or move the mic back or they would position it differently uh, to make it sit in the mix. And yes, that's like a ton of work. And to be honest, a lot of times now we don't have the kind of budgets or time to do stuff like that, to really make sure everything fits. However, that is something we aspire to. Like we aspire to make things sound as good as possible. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this brings me to my big point of today's discussion that what's already there is really what matters. Um, the source is really what matters. Your ability to capture that source is really what matters. How it sounds in the room is really what matters. And 
your interpretation of how it sounds in the room is really what matters. For me, the ultimate goal in most of what I do is to get the best, and I'm talking about from an engineering standpoint here, is to get the best raw sounds as I can. Um, and not not just good, but right, the right sounds. We've talked about this before, right? Like, it, it does me no good if I get this awesome, like, clean, twangy guitar sound on a metal record, right? That does me no good at all. Um, getting the right sound is super important. And... Um, you have to do your research into how to get that right sound. And I can almost guarantee you it's not a mix problem, okay? It's it's either a you problem or it's a room problem or it's you denying that the room is a problem. <laughs> um, but I, and again, I'm not like pointing the finger here. Like I've done the exact same thing many, many times, you know, where I'm like, oh, well, if I upgrade my converters, that's the missing link. Oh, if I upgrade this, that's the missing link. And, you know, you have to look at it. It's not like the links are missing. You know what I mean? Like there's no really missing links per se. You have weak links and you have strong links, right? And a lot of times we get caught up in blaming the wrong links. Some of the best advice I ever got on this topic was that uh, whatever's farthest away from the computer is the most important thing. And that was all he, that was all he said. He was a mentor of mine. And, and I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. What, what do you mean? And I thought about it more, and and what he means is all the way on the opposite side of the chain um, from the computer. So the room and the speakers in the room. So the monitors and the room, the acoustic environment. And then all the way on the other side of the chain is the room and the source and the mic. Those things are at the far ends of the chain. The very first thing that that sound, you know, where the sound comes from is the source the vocal, the amp, the instrument, and that's in a room. And at the very end of the chain, you're hearing that through speakers in a room. That was years ago, and that really resonated with me, and that's why I'm still preaching that same thing today and why I'm here still preaching about it. But uh, I know so many people, so many engineers that are they're wanting to get better, they're wanting to improve, and you know, when they finally realize it, when they finally, it clicks, you know, and it, and it finally clicks for them, they think like, wow, like there's really not, there's no tricks, you know what I mean? It really is skill. It really is time and skill and listening and knowing what you're listening for and training your ears and hearing a sound in a room and thinking, okay, this needs blah, blah, blah. I need to tune the heads differently. I need to adjust the amp settings. I need to, we need to change the guitar strings. We need to, uh, you know, use a different head. We need to move the vocalist over here. We need to put up some baffles. We need to, I mean, he, being able to listen for those types of details, uh, doesn't it make sense? Like if the thing is really good in the room, you should be able in theory to just put a mic on it. Right? Like, doesn't that seem to make a lot of sense as opposed to, no, I'm missing a piece, I'm missing a plugin or something that's, uh, that's going to fix it or, oh, no, I have to get, oh, it's not going to sound good because I don't have any tape simulation or, you know what I mean? Like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Um, those things help. Those things are cool. I use them all the time. But that's not what gets me my sound. So I'm not sure how many of you have been in this situation, but this is a situation that I'm in very often. 
And it's one of those teaching moments. This is, again, one of those things that comes from time and experience. But when somebody hires you to be an engineer only, they're going to mix it or they're going to send it to somebody else to mix um, or somebody else is going to work in it. And all you're doing is recording it. You know, a lot of guys in home studios are recording, mixing, mastering. They're doing everything. Okay. And we all get that. But when you get a gig, when you're just engineering, think about that for a second. I mean, think about the idea that, oh, well, if I only had this piece of gear, then I could do it, but I don't have that. So I got to use a plugin to blah, 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 blah. Um, or, oh, if I just had this, or if I just blah, 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 excuse, excuse, excuse. Okay. That doesn't work in those situations. You know what I mean? Like you, that all you have to rely on is your skill and the gear that's available. That's when you're really put to the test, right? When you walk into an unfamiliar room and you are hired as the engineer and you have to get good sounds, like that's your entire goal is to get the best sounds you can. And then it's passed on to the mixer who then tries to get the best mix he can, et cetera, et cetera. You really have to listen and you really have to understand what the intent is and what, what the artist needs and what the sound needs, what the source needs. I've been on those sessions where I've screwed it up and that's a true story, you know, where I've worked with a band and I was in an unfamiliar space and I was, uh, you know, I was overly cocky and I thought, oh yeah, well, I'm a good engineer. I get great sounds in my own space. And, you know, I was recording these sounds and I didn't take any time to kind of like acclimate to the room and, uh, I didn't take any time to really listen. I just, you know, used my old standard. Es effectively, I was using presets in real life. You know what I mean? Like, you guys, if you're fans of the show, you know my feelings on presets, like EQ or compression presets, okay? It's ludicrous, okay? There's no such thing as a compression preset, really. You know what I mean? Like, you gotta adjust those things for everything, every single sound, because every single sound is different. Same with, like, there's not a vocal mic or, like, a single vocal mic or, like, this is a better, quote, vocal mic than that vocal mic. No. There are millions and millions and millions and millions of vocalists out there that all sound slightly different. Some mics are going to work on them. Some mics won't. And that pairing is not something that you can just guess at. Like, oh, it's a female vocal, so probably this mic. I mean, that might get you close, but maybe not that mic, you know, like maybe not. And there might be very strange reasons as to why. Could be just the particular details of the frequency response um, happen to match with their voice or even offset the issues in their voice. You know, it might, might have a little bit of a dip at 6K and maybe that's right where their sibilance is. But if their sibilance is more in like the 5K region, maybe that mic doesn't really do anything for that area and it doesn't sound less sibilant it's actually just taking away clarity from them right i mean you're matching very particular things to very other particular things another reason is that people will sometimes get caught up on the gear that they own like oh well i usually use this mic as a room mic or uh you know this mic on female vocalists so i'm going to use that it'll sound good it's like well, okay well it, it might it, it very possibly and probably will but it also might not. So you, you got to be able to listen and respond. That's what you're doing. You're listening to the source. You're thinking, mm, you know, there's maybe a little too much this or that. Make a change. Is it better? Is it worse? 
Are we going the right direction? Okay, getting colder. All right, let's let's go a totally different route. Let's try something totally different. It's a problem-solving game. And a lot of engineering work, at least, is a game of solving problems. You try to minimize the problems and maximize the excitement and the energy and turn up the good stuff and turn down the bad stuff, right? That's a very simple explanation of essentially what we do. I guess the point that I'm trying to make today is if you want to improve, you need to really acknowledge the things that you struggle with first. So let's say you really struggle with drums. Um, let's say you really struggle with getting great drum sounds. Okay, obviously your brain is going to ask why. You first have to throw all of your ego and preconceived notions out the window. And you can't say, well, this is a good drum kit. What's the problem? Maybe it's not a good drum kit. Like you think it might be, but maybe it's not. Or maybe it is a good drum kit and you don't know how to tune it. Or maybe it is a good drum kit and you don't have the right heads on it and you don't know how to tune it. Let's say you really figure that out, right? You have to, again, you got to start from like square one and square one is the room. You got to figure out the room situation. You know, try moving the drums to a different part of the room or a different room if you've got it available. Um, you know, if you ever get the chance, go to a nice studio, rent out that studio and record your problematic instrument there. You know, rent out the studio. I mean, geez, for an investment of, you know, a couple hundred bucks um, or even a thousand bucks for the price of a microphone or a you know piece of outboard gear, go record a band at a nice studio. You know, show up there as an engineer or even as an assistant and go record a band at a nice studio or even go record drums at a nice studio. And you will hear, you will learn so much from that experience. I guarantee it because you'll be like, oh, I can't get that in my room. Um, huh. And you'll hear it differently for the first time. Very, You're, you're sort of paying to create an aha moment, but that really is true. You know, a similar moment has happened for me in the past where I got a session one time that was recorded by a very, very good engineer. And he was like, dude, check out this session. We recorded it with blah, 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 big name guy. And I was like, listen, how good these tracks sound. And he sent it to me. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, I was very humbled at that moment because the sounds were so good. Um, they were so good. And it blew my mind. I was like, how did he get such a good kick drum sound? And what mics were they using? Blah, blah. And I asked him all these questions. And what really hit the nail in the coffin for me was when they basically, most of the gear that they used was the same type or caliber of gear that I was using. You know, I was like, oh, we used API mic pre's. And it's like, well, I've, I've got API mic pre's. And they was like, oh, well, this is what we used on kick. I was like, that's exactly what I use on kick drum. I, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, what drums were you using? I was like, oh, it was, it was my drum kit. It's like, I've recorded your drum kit. I, what, what in the world? And, you know, and I was like, well, what conversion were you using? And I was like, oh, you know, it was just some whatever. And I was like, well, no way is that, is it that, you know? And we just kept going back and forth. And, you know, he's telling me, what'd you use on the snare drum? SM57. Okay. Uh, well, overheads, you know I mean? Like I, I kept searching for some, something that I was like missing, right? And it just wasn't there. 
And so for all of you out there, you know, listening, take you could take this as a cautionary tale. Like you can save up and spend money on gear and get great gear and do all this stuff and you'll get great, you know, great pieces of equipment to work with. And, the, and, and I love working with my gear, but most of the time it's not the real problem. And again, I'm not saying that gear doesn't matter or like whatever, like, oh, it's not about the gear. Like the gear does matter. Like you can save up and get the nice stuff, but then you might realize oh, I didn't actually, I improved my sound, but I didn't actually fix the problem. Okay, so from there you can say, all right, so let me think about this session for a second. What's the difference then if the gear is basically the same? Um, you know, I've saved up all my money. I've, I've invested into my studio. I've bought all these mics. I've bought all these pre's. I've bought all these things, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, I felt validated in a way because they were using the same stuff I was using and I was using the same stuff they were using. And this guy's, you know, professional of 30 years and all this. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm using the right stuff. Okay. Well, what's the difference there? Okay. What's missing from this puzzle? Number one, it was an amazing room. Number two, it was an extremely experienced engineer with 30 years experience uh, who's worked on big records. That was a very humbling moment. For me, um, and it's hard to admit those sorts of things, but those are some of the most valuable lessons that I've ever learned. Where I was faced with the reality that the problem was me, and I had to admit it to myself. And again, nobody likes to admit that they don't. They want to blame it on the gear, they want to blame it on this and that, and. You know, you really can't rule something out until you know enough about it to rule it out. For example, like, you can't say, oh, well, my problem is because of X, Y, Z, when you really haven't heard what goes into, you know, the sound you're going for. What I mean is, for example, let's say you're having trouble with drums, and you really are having trouble getting a great snare drum sound, and you're using an SM57 on the snare, okay? If you somehow think that the SM57 or your interface or your preamp is the problem, I mean, you're literally like denying 60 years of recording experience from the industry that that mic, you know, without anything should actually sound pretty decent. You know, it might need a little top end or it might need a little bit of, you know, maybe a high pass filter or something, maybe a little compression, but it's not like some voodoo thing that these guys are doing, right? It shouldn't be at least. I mean, to, to say that, oh, well, I maybe I should use a different mic. Oh, if I got this mic, it would be better. Oh, if I had a better preamp, then it's better. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, literally tuning the drum a little bit different is going to have way more of an effect than any mic change will. My rule of thumb for that, for explaining that to like my students in class is name a microphone that makes a singer go flat. It's, and there's not one, right? There's not a there's not a microphone that makes a singer flat or sharp or sing more emotionally or sing quieter or sing louder. Uh, there's not a microphone that makes a snare drum magically sound really good. Okay, microphones have a job, and that job is to capture sound. And there are tried and true microphones that, you know, if you use an SM57 on a snare, even, you know, for good measure, throw an SM57 on the bottom or some mic on the bottom. Like, if you can't get that to work, the problem's not the mic, it's not the preamp, it's not the interface. Everything is so good now in that department, like, that's not your problem. Okay, so just admit that 
it's going to be the drum, it's going to be the tuning, it's going to be the player, and or it's going to be the room. It's got to be one of those things. And so 90% of this, the time, when I like I was saying earlier, like I get emails about things, people are like, well, I have struggled to get this, you know, what piece of gear do you recommend? And I very rarely recommend a piece of gear um, because that's usually not the issue that I'm hearing. At the same time, every now and then, it is the gear. Uh, I had a podcast listener email me recently um, where he had gotten some cymbals and he was hearing some really harsh overtones in those cymbals. And that's something I'm very familiar with because I went on a long trek and I'm very cautious about cymbals because I hate harsh, weird, strong overtones in cymbals that, peer, you know, you hit a cymbal and it goes like, and it rings at a note. I hate that so much. Um, and so he sent me the files and he was like, "Are you, do you hear these harsh harmonics or am I crazy? And I'm like, nope, I hear them. I don't know what... That guy was talking about, but I hear him and they don't sound very good. <laughs> you know, it's so like sometimes, sometimes it is the gear, like straight up the gear, um, you know, and like symbols, obviously, like you can't do a whole lot to those to change them up. Like, you know, I guess you could put some tape on them or something. And I guess sometimes that can help a little, but you know, it's a symbol, like it should sound, it should sound how you want it. You shouldn't have to tape it up to make it sound great. Um, but like snare drums are kind of a different story. Uh, there are so many snare drums and there's so many ways to tune. I mean, just tuning alone. I mean, most snare drums have eight or 10 lugs. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to that drum. And then if you count the bottom head, it's got, you know, 16 to 20 lugs. It's like, there's a lot of things you can do wrong to make that snare drum sound bad. So like the chances of it being the tried and true microphone for the last 60 years over tuning, pretty low, right? Um, so very, very high probability that it is the tuning or the head or the drummer. Um, and again, I find this, uh, sort of what I would call like a gear denial a lot in, uh, in my clients when it comes to things like drum heads, I'll have drummers come in and I'll say like, okay, you know, uh, I I'd like to replace the snare head with a brand new head. And, you know, when they hear that I want to use ambassadors or an ambassador X or something like that, they're like, oh, well, it's really thin, you know, and I really, I like to use these, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't run into that problem all the time, but I do sometimes. And you've got a drummer who's got like really thick, like super thick drum heads. And I have to kind of explain like, those aren't really quite like sensitive or bright enough for what I need. Um, and again, it's one of those things like they're sort of in denial, like they're, they're almost like thinking like, I've discovered this magic thing that works better than 60 years of recording experience, you know, that ambassador heads have been used for a long, long time. And there's a reason we like them in the studio because they're bright. They don't last a very long time, but I mean, how long are you recording drums for? I mean, you're not recording them for like six months. You know what I mean? Like, let's hope you're not. Um, and so like, there's a reason that that drum head works really well for recording. It's bright, it's clear, it's articulate, it's sensitive. Um, you know, it, again, it's thin. It doesn't last for a long time, but you know, uh, at the same time, you look at this drummer's heads and they're using like Evans EC2s, which are really thick drum heads and they've, they're old. And it's like, so not only are those really thick drum heads, but they're old. It's like the sensitivity isn't there. The brightness isn't there. Like, I don't, what do you want me to say? You know what I mean? Um, that's one of those sorts of like gear denial things that happens. I, 
One time I had a guitar player who didn't want me to touch the settings on his amp. And initially, well, well that does kind of make sense. It, the more I thought about it, I was kind of like, all right, number one, I'm here to make your record sound great. And, you know, I'm hearing your amp for the first time and I don't think it has enough low end or it has too much or it has, you know, needs more top end or whatever. And, you know, you're used to getting your sound on stage or uh, in your bedroom or whatever, but I'm hearing this for the first time. Number two, how am I supposed to trust your ear if you're so afraid that if I change the settings, you can't get it back? Like that kind of discredits your ear's ability to hear that sort of thing if you can only get the sound once in your whole life. If the, I mean, what if your amp gets bumped, like, on tour? Like, <laughs> can you not get the sound back ever? I mean, I guess if you're really concerned, just, like, take a picture of it on your phone or something and, and bring it up later. But it's just kind of, it was just kind of funny to me, you know? To sum up today's podcast, I'd just like to say, what really does matter? Well, it's the same answer. What really matters is you. Uh, what really matters is your skill, your ability, your time, the time you put in. And if you're having a problem, and we all have problems, we all have our own problems in the studio, like, oh, I can't get a good drum sound, I can't I struggle with guitar sounds, I struggle with vocal sounds. Most of the time, it's you. And that's either because you don't have the skill yet, or because you're in denial about the real problem. Whether that's the room, um, whether that's, you know, you think it's this piece of gear, that piece of gear, this, where 90% of the time, it's the source. Everything before the mic, okay? Um, and arguably, at that point, if there's one piece of gear that I would argue makes a, you know, a huge difference, it's the mic. And I've said this before, like, that used to not be in my opinion. We actually have um, a podcast earlier on somewhere where I express my opinion that I felt like the mic preamp made more of a difference. Um, as I do this longer, that was a long time ago. The longer I do this, the more I don't agree with that anymore. Um, and in fact, I very much disagree with it. Um, but I'm not going to go back and change that episode because that was my opinion at the time. Um, these days, I very much disagree with that. The mic makes way more difference than the preamp. You know, there's no preamp that's going to take a, that's going to show up the difference between like a super dark ribbon mic and a super bright condenser mic. Like no preamp is that dramatically different. Um, you know, the microphone's going to make way more of a difference. And even then, you know, going condenser versus condenser versus condenser, you know, the differences are much less dramatic than almost any change made to the source. So swapping a drum head for a new head, tuning the drum head differently, using a different drummer, using a different drum, um, you know, even on guitar, changing guitar strings. I mean, all those are way bigger differences than a mic can make. A mic can't change. I mean, the sound between dull strings and new strings, no microphone is going to make a change that big. That's huge. I mean, we're talking about six individual pieces of metal that are replaced on a guitar, it's going to change how the guitar resonates. It's going to change the brightness. It's going to change sort of the, you know, the overall color of the guitar. It's going to change how it responds with fingers and with a pick. I mean, so many things, right? 
Um, same with piano. This is one that's hard to swallow too, because it's a hard answer to give. Piano is a hard instrument to record. And sometimes you just don't have the right piano. You know, you want to record this big, beautiful piano sound and you're recording it on an upright. Again, that's not to say that the up, that you can't get a good recording, but, and again, it doesn't really matter what mics you have, but maybe that's just not the right piano. So that is one of the benefits of, say, virtual instruments, is that we have the option to choose different pianos um, to get the right piano, even though it isn't a real recorded piano. And in some cases, that's a compromise you have to pick. What is the benefit of having a, a real recorded piano that's the wrong piano? Does that outweigh a MIDI piano that's the right piano, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So that's a hard thing to weigh. And I, I, I can't answer that for you. That's something that is very, you know, case-by-case case basis. Anyway, um, so summing up again <laughs> for like the fifth time, um, you know, the problem is generally you or your denial of the problem, the real problem. Um, and I can almost guarantee you 99% of the time, it's not a plugin. It's not a piece of gear, uh, or at least a piece of audio gear. Um, it could 90% of the time, it's going to be your room. It's going to be your source. It's going to be, you know, or the way the source is adjusted, whether that's an amp setting or snare drum tuning or the strings on a guitar. This is just coming from my experience. Now, this was a long-winded way to say that simple fact, but it's true. It's a hard lesson to learn, and it's really important, though. I hope you didn't take this episode as to be basically like an hour of me being like, you suck, and here's why. Because <laughs> I promise that's not the intent of this episode. The intent here is to say that, you know, you really need to take a closer look at where your problems are coming from and what could be causing them. And everyone goes through this thing. I'm sure all of you out there listening to this have had similar thoughts that I've expressed here in this episode. You've had that thought like, well, man, how do they do that on that kick drum? Or how do they get such a good snare sound or whatever? Well, you know, you have to start investigating and you got to take it one piece at a time, look at each piece, and I'm here to cut out a lot of that work and tell you it's probably not your interface. It's probably not your mic preamps. I mean, sure, those will help to get nice ones, but that's not really the problem, okay? That's icing on the cake, right? You got to figure out why the cake tastes bad first, right? Before you ice it, you got to figure out what's wrong there, okay? And so I'm trying to help you save a bunch of time because I've experienced these things just like you have just like we all have, okay? I've talked to so many people with these types of situations. You name it on the instrument, you know what I mean? Like guitars, drums, bass, you know, anything, vocals. And it's almost never a piece of gear, at least a piece of recording gear, that's your actual problem. Now, just for comparison, let me give you a couple of quick examples of a situation where the gear actually was the answer to the problem. 
Because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, what does that look like? You know, and I can tell you it's much more minimal. Okay. It doesn't really manifest itself so much as a problem, so much as it's not quite doing what I need it to do or quite doing what I want it to do. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples of that. So the first that I can think of is um, overheads. I usually like to do a left, right, and a center overhead, or you could say it, I do a stereo pair as well as a mono overhead. And for a long time, I used a ribbon mic as my mono overhead, and I used uh, Neumann KM184 small diaphragm mics as my stereo overheads. And like, by all accounts, you could look at those pieces of gear and be like, oh, this is good gear. It should sound good, quote, quote, right? But again, this is like the vocal thing, you know? It's like, it doesn't really matter what should sound good. It matters what does sound good. So I had that set up and for a long time, I was like, you know, it sounds good, but I'm just, it's not quite working together right. Like the mono and the stereo don't really work together. Uh, so I started playing with positions. So I started adjusting my positions and doing sort of shootouts with my with these particular mics in my room with my kit, uh, with a session drummer, uh, or even just by myself, like in my spare time, with like, okay, well, what if I move the overheads higher? Or what if I move them lower, or wider, or narrower? What if I, you know, move the mono overhead over here? And eventually I found a position. I was like, okay, I'm liking this better, right? Now, a couple months go by, and eventually I'm like, you know, now that I've, I ended up moving the overheads a little bit closer to the cymbals in the process that I was liking, and I was like, you know, now that they're closer, I feel like the mics are a little harsh for this position. So I was like, well, should I move them back where it wasn't as harsh? But then I was like, okay, well, let me just try swapping out mics and going through a bunch of different mics. So I went through a lot of different mics. I went through ribbons and, you know, condensers and 414s and, I mean, uh, small diaphragms, large diaphragms and all kinds of stuff. And eventually I settled on uh, Telefunken M60 uh, small diaphragm mics, which are actually cheaper than the Neumanns. They're a, quote, cheaper piece of gear uh, with the hypercardioid capsules and a um, Mojave MA300 tube mic as my mono overhead. So three completely different mics in a similar position, and I liked it a lot better. It, it got a lot closer to what I wanted. From there, I was like, all right, I really like the stereo overheads, but let me try out some different preamps. Uh, so I went through a handful of my preamps and just found a, a set that I really liked on those particular mics. And for whatever reason, I really liked the A-Designs Pacifica on the stereo overheads. And for the mono overhead, I did the same thing. I went through different pre's. So again, it was, while you could say, you could argue, um, oh, well then it was a gear problem. My retort to that would be, well, it, it was kind of a gear problem. However, it was solved by time and experimentation. The gear, swapping out the gear was only known because I took the time to know it. And that's kind of a weird way to say it, but anyway. Okay, next example is guitar. So I'm a guitar player, obviously, and so I'm always interested in trying out different microphones on guitar. Um, one time, I was really struggling to get really good high-gain guitar sounds. So I'm talking like metal, you know, or like heavy rock stuff, or even like 70s, 80s rock stuff. Uh, I just couldn't quite get it there. Like I could get really great clean guitar sounds and I could get, you know, really great sort of like punk guitar sounds, like kind of bright and gritty sounds, but I couldn't get that like big Marshall sound, or I couldn't really get that like super heavy, like chug, chug metal sound. 
And I was like, what is going on? Like, I'm using like great stuff. I'm using a SM57 and a 121. Like, it's a tried and true setup that works for me all the time. Um, you know, it, is it the position? Again, you, I went to the position. I was like, well, let me try and move them farther out. But then it wasn't quite working at all. Um, so eventually what I did was I just started researching like, okay, what are, you know, what are the metal guys using and what are the, what did ACDC use? And you do some reading and you're like, oh, well, uh, you know, ACDC used a lot of like condensers on, on like their guitar sounds. So I tried that and I was like, yeah, that's all right. I, I like it, but maybe it's just not, you know, I don't have the same type situation and it's just not working for me. So eventually what I wound up doing is doing some speaker swaps in the cabinet, uh, which is actually a very affordable thing to change. You know, a, a guitar speaker's 50 to $150. It's not a huge, you know, price upgrade to swap out speakers. Uh, not like, you know, buying a Royer 121. Um, and I wound up really liking, go figure, an SM57 and a uh, Sennheiser 421, a tried and true setup all through the you know 70s, 80s, 90s um, on a 412 cabinet. And you know it seems so obvious. And sometimes your brain says like, well, this should sound good because it's a Royer 121. But at least for me, it wasn't tight enough on the bottom end, and it didn't quite get me what I needed. And so that's a lesson where it kind of was the gear, you know, it was the mic. It, I wasn't using the right mic in that situation. But again, to sort of go back to my original point of this episode, I didn't upgrade to a better mic. It, it wasn't that I was like, oh, uh, if only I had this mic, I could get a good sound. It's like, no, I actually used a cheaper mic, a much cheaper mic, a mic that's a third of the price. Um, but I used the right mic in that scenario. And I did, I did the work. And so sort of the, I, like I said, I know this is kind of, I, I said it was going to be a gear example, but it, it still kind of ties back to the point, right? That it really only found that out by putting in the time, putting in the effort, doing shootouts, doing experiments, trying different mics and seeing what works and what doesn't. So I hope you guys have learned some things in this podcast. I hope it wasn't a boring one. I hope it, uh, and, and, and again, I, I'm sorry if I sounded like the, you know, the cranky guy on his porch shouting at kids like, oh, you kids today, you just don't understand how to engineer records. Uh, you know, like, I would not sound like that guy. But uh, I, I just want you to know that the thoughts you have about your struggles in audio are not your own. Like, we all struggle with that. I've thought about it many times. I spend sleepless nights laying up thinking like, oh my gosh, like, if I just did this, could I get a better, like, bass sound? Like, is that the trick? Like, we've all done that. We've all been there. So you're not alone with this. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, feel free to email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. As always, guys, check out the podcast website, recordingloungepodcast.com. Keep recording. Keep experimenting. Always be curious. Uh, always be experimenting with new positions and new mics and different mics and always be trying to develop your ear and understand what these types of movements and changes make. And also realize that a lot of your problems can be solved by time and you just need to put in the hours. So as much as that might not be the answer you wanted, it's the truth. So enjoy the rest of your day, guys. I will talk to you next time.